Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, webcast series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. I'm joined today by Glenn College faculty member, Dr. Caroline Wagner. Uh, Caroline is a world-renowned expert in the flow of scientific information and scientific collaboration, uh, particularly across countries. Uh, she's done work advising the National Science Foundation here in the United States and the OECD internationally. So Caroline, thanks for spending time with us. It's my pleasure. How are you doing today? I'm doing great and uh, looking forward to chatting with you about this very important policy topic. Good. Well, to date, most of our conversations have been very local and state focused. So I'm excited because we're gonna talk about something that's, that's global and that's international collaboration around science. And particular, particularly, excuse me, I wanna talk about the United States and China, the, the world's largest superpower and the one that is on the horizon as the emerging superpower. And we read a lot about um, conflict and the lack of cooperation between China and the United States, particularly on economic grounds around the trade war. Um, but what's been the nature of scientific collaboration between these two countries over the last three, four years? Well, in about 2015, China bumped the United Kingdom off the top of the list of countries with whom the United States scientists collaborate. Uh, up until about 2016, if you looked at scientific articles uh, and who publishes with whom, what countries are listed as partners, the UK has been the United States' biggest partner for decades. Um, but in 2016, China rose to the top. And it's a really spectacular change uh, in the world of science. China really had historically has had a scientific tradition, but as we know, that dipped quite a bit in the early 20th century. But with the, um, the Great Awakening in the 1970s, science became one of the top priorities for China, and they began putting resources into that. And as we all know, sending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and then thousands of students and scientists around the world and especially targeting the United States to cooperate. So those relationships were put in place in part because most, um, almost all international collaboration in science or technology engineering begin face-to-face. -face. People need to meet in order to begin to work together. So what we see is that as Chinese researchers have come to the United States, and worked with scientists here, they've established relationships. And if and when they go home, they maintain those relationships over time. Before we get to that individual collaboration level, I wanna, I wanna paint the landscape a little bit more in terms of who are the other countries that are scientific powers, right? We presume the United States, and you've just mentioned our primary collaborator at that national level, or the place where we see the most collaboration is with China. And then you mentioned the UK, the United Kingdom. What are some of the other countries that are sort of preeminent creators of science and knowledge who we would potentially collaborate with? So another amazing fact about um, scientific capabilities over the last 25 years, if you look at 1980, let's say as a benchmark year, um, where a lot of things began to change. You see China changing in that time, the USSR begins, uh, 
uh, it's slow weakening to the point of downfall. What we see is that um, in 1980, there were about seven nations of the world that were doing 90% or more of science. And that is the ones that you could name. Uh, the United States, France, Germany, Switzerland, um, the UK, of course, um, the Netherlands, um, and some of the Nordic countries. But what you see over the last, uh, since 1980, is that now, if you looked at that same 90% of countries, you would see 20 countries. Okay, so in other words, where it used to be a small handful of wealthy countries, now there's 20, 25 countries that would be listed in the top list of scientifically advanced countries. So that's one really significant change. Um, and in that process of countries developing their capacity, they've also, as they come up to world levels, they begin to collaborate with each other. And so then you see this kind of emerging of a big old network around the world and even countries that aren't quite there yet, but want to be countries like Chile, Brazil, Mexico, um, Uganda, um, and uh, Nigeria. These countries have good capabilities in science and technology and are moving in that direction. They've also joined in. So we have this in addition to nations putting investments into science and technology, we have these, this very active international community that works closely together. Let's, let's talk about that international community. And when you say collaboration, I mean, one could envision a nation state collaborating with a nation state on a specific scientific product project, rather. But earlier, you were describing that flow of people at the sort of individual level what, when, when you're saying the degree of scientific collaboration, what, what are you looking at? What's the evidence of a partnership and a collaboration? So there's several different ways of thinking about that. The most obvious and the most visible of those is big science, like uh, CERN in Switzerland, um, big telescopes in Chile and, and Hawaii, um, the uh, great big labs that are very well known. And those are very obvious. But actually, if you look, if you think about it as a, an iceberg, um, that's the tip of the iceberg. And underneath the water level, you would find thousands of researchers who find each other, usually from connections that they've already had or get introduced or they meet at a conference where they begin to work together just out of the needs of the, their research and the questions that they're asking. So the, really the bulk of collaboration uh, that goes on is really person to person, what I call a self-organizing force, right? They self-organize into groups and teams. Uh, and lots of times they may not necessarily work together year after year, but they might often come back to those people over time. And that's important for our China story that we'll get so, to. In but before we get to the China story, I'm going to weave in the pandemic here in a minute. What, um, why, why is this an important policy issue? So what the process you're describing is this organic interaction between individual scholars with some big tip of the iceberg, big sort of projects. And that sounds like it's driven by the curiosity of the, of the, the researchers themselves. Why is this a national and international public policy question or area of interest? So it's a public policy issue for a number of really critical reasons. The first is funding. Most of the funding for research and development comes from governments. Governments are using taxpayer money 
when they use that taxpayer money, they have to account for the value of that money. Now, if they are paying for international collaborations, Congress and congressional staffers, like I used to be, will say, well, why are we funding that work with Hungary? What, why are we funding that lab in Wuhan, China, which we'll talk about? Um, why, why are we doing that? I mean, we're not getting the benefit out of that, are we? Um, and so that leads to this question of how do we, how indeed do we account for this money? So that's number one important policy reason. The second reason is that Congress and legislators, as well as policymakers and agencies, fund this research and make careful choices about what to put money into, very careful choices, um, about where to put money in order to grow a kind of pool of knowledge that there's a grow, you know, whatever the consensus is at that time is we need more in quantum, we need more in material sciences, we need more nano. And so the process puts funding into those critical areas. And we have to be sure that we're working at the cutting edge. Otherwise, what are we doing? You know, why are we doing this? So what happens if you look at the collaborative process is that uh, what you find, what I found, this is my own research, that elites tend to work with other elites. Okay, so, um, so you get somebody at the world-class level who's working on material science, well, a lot of times what they'll find is that somebody in France is doing something extremely interesting and worth looking at. Now, we don't necessarily want to reprodu reproduce in miniature everything that's going on around the world. That would be very highly inefficient. So the efficiency comes in that we link to people, smart people who exist around the world doing amazing work, and we gain efficiencies from connecting, collaborating, and sharing and swapping ideas with them. So that is the second reason why it's important. The third reason why it's important from a policy perspective is that we need to know um, what's going on in other countries from a security perspective. We do need to know and keep a very close eye on what other countries are doing. Where are they growing? Do they have quantum computing? Are they able to do quantum communication? Uh, cybersecurity requires all kinds of knowledge and capability in um, lots of different technologies, right? Medicine, we need to know uh, what medical capabilities, what are people doing in chemical, chemical, uh, um, chemical related uh, weaponry or nuclear power. So all of these capabilities, while on one hand, we benefit when uh, other countries are smart because we can pick off their good ideas. On the other hand, as other countries get smart and capable, they also grow their capability in military uh, and defense capabilities as well. So let's, let's now pivot back to China and to the pandemic. So focusing on collaboration in the health arena, um, as COVID-19 hit, how did it affect the US-China scientific collaborations that you were tracking? What, what, what did you see start to happen in that January, February, March period of 2020? So one thing to know uh, ahead of time before I talk about exactly what happened is that China is not a world leader in health research, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. Um, they're a world leader in some other areas that are and, be, and becoming increasingly so in some of their areas, but health isn't really one of their top areas. However, because of SARS, China had 
been working on coronavirus. Okay, so it's just a little bit of an accident of history that they had already been working on coronavirus very intensively. So it turns out that come January, when um, the, well, really November for them, uh, when they began to realize that they had something uh, unique uh, and world-threatening on their hands, uh, the scientists who had been working on coronavirus began immediately conducting research within uh, the Wuhan Virology Laboratory, which has been partly funded by the National Institutes of Health. So uh, they began turning out work and really the most important and kind of the, what we considered when we looked at it, the most important initial work was actually published by Chinese scientists in The Lancet, which is an American-based world-renowned journal uh, where they had sequenced the genome of the novel coronavirus. Mm-hmm. That immediately went to the top of the list of cited and, um, and important works and, and remains there. It, it's, it's a really important piece of work that came straight out of China, straight out to the world scientific community. So what our team did um, when we decided let's, well, we've been studying teams and we've been studying country investments and we've, we have the data as to who's working on what. Let's see what's happening to collaboration after the pandemic. So we looked at the two years moving up to the pandemic, what was happening in coronavirus research. And then we looked at the immediate aftermath and we found some very, very interesting things. As I mentioned, we found that China was doing world-class work in coronavirus research up until the pandemic, really a good thing. And they were working closely with US partners in that work and with UK, I'll get to that in a minute, but also with the UK. So um, we saw that that was leading up, they were doing interesting work. So starting in January then, what we see is that, um, you know, as the world closed down rapidly because of the coronavirus, COVID-19 is now called, it's now called, um, what we saw is that um, everything dropped away for about six weeks, right? Nobody was in their labs. People didn't know what was happening. But um, there is resilience within the system. And what we found is that um, pretty much immediately, Chinese researchers got back in touch with their US counterparts and they began working together. So what we saw then is that these- Pause for for one second here, Caroline. I don't mean to divert you, but but again, I'm intrigued by the collaboration. So who would be the collaborators on the Chinese side? You've mentioned some of the the scholars and actors, and then similarly on the United States side, who, who was doing this collaboration? So the initial collaborations um, that had the biggest impact were um, being done by the Wuhan Institute of Virology, mm-hmm. uh, which is also uh, a university-related laboratory, Tsinghua mm-hmm. uh, University and Beijing Medical, uh, University, Medical College. Those three really led the way at the very earliest days. On the U.S. side, what you see is actually University of Texas, which is mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, connection there, um, uh, and then then the usual big centers for medical research, including Case Western in Ohio. So uh, you see that the um, the big medical centers began working together quickly. 
So we're really talking, it sounds like, partnerships at the university level. So while the CDC and NIH may have been involved in helping launch these research projects, the actual research is at that university to university level between the collaborators at the, uh, who are the scientists. So no doubt the US CDC and FDA began discussions with their counterparts in China. That part I don't have a record of. What we do is look at the records so we saw what was being published right, right in the publication records. Yeah. So that's the part we looked at. And that part will be overly, universities will be overly represented there. Yeah. So policy processes would go on, of course. What we looked at is the research side of the, um, of the, the ledger. So I, I interrupted your story. You were saying that at first there was all this collaboration and then it went dark for six weeks and then it popped back up again. Then you start seeing people collaborating. Now, what we saw is initially um, we found that the teams, compared to the teams um, prior to the pandemic, the teams in the pandemic era were smaller and more elite which is actually, when we thought about it, that's actually what we would expect, although we didn't know what to expect. But they were smaller, and part of it is because you just have limited time to communicate, and the communication is critical, and you have to get information back and forth very fast. So there's going to be smaller teams. And the second thing is they're more elite in the sense that it is lim more limited to people you already know. Because... In a, a situation like this, you have to rely on either someone you deeply trust or someone whose reputation you deeply trust. So in that case, what we saw is that those relationships are the first to reemerge. And that is partly why the UK is a, as becomes a player very rapidly. The UK had also, also is a world leader, probably the world leader in virology research. Mm -hmm. So you see the UK coming online very, very rapidly also after, um, as people come back online after the initial shock. So you see uh, at the very beginning, China lights up, then China, US, uh, and then China, US, UK. Um, we see this. So what, what were the, just sticking within the health area, pre-pandemic, where was that collaboration and what were the sort of areas of health where that was collaborating and then put the, 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 the study of virology and, and ultimately I'm curious to know about vaccine development. How, how does that all link together? So what was it like pre-pandemic and now in the, in the midst? Actually, we're just publishing this as well. Uh, what we did was we looked at the fields in the um, pre-pandemic era. And there you see nice little nested communities of scientists working together, immunology, immunology over here, vaccines over there, um, epidemiology here, and hardly any public health. I mean, really it's so clear from looking at everything that was so underinvested in public health research. But um, so hardly any of that. Everybody's at the really more basic science level of you know, how do we understand viruses and their, ex you know, exchange and um, how we catch them and, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, but then we looked at it in the post-pandemic, we just looked at uh, terms that were popping up um, and 
you could see that the community had been thrown into complete chaos. (laughs) No one knew what was happening. Um, And, you know, you just see popping up words like Wuhan and fever and, you know, because um, really nobody knew what we were dealing with. So um, the the lead up, everybody's in nice little communities. Um, What we saw was like a fruit basket tossed up, right? And we're just catching this big fruit salad. So, so right afterwards, um, really what we began to see when we looked at the actual research um, is uh, three different areas, research emerging in public health, all of a sudden a recognition that, wow, we really need to know a lot more about public health, patient care, and then the virus itself. And the virus itself, that work is the work that had been going on already and where you kind of see a reestablishment of existing relationships. Now, what what about vaccine development? I didn't hear that in that list, although maybe that's in the virology, but, but where's that working? And is there international collaboration around vaccine development? There is, but to a great extent, that work takes place in companies. Mm-hmm. Now, companies do have links into all of these universities. As we know, even at Ohio State, right, we have connections with Abbott Labs and we work with them. Uh, however, the kinds of relationships that will be existing are kind of hard to see because they don't actually produce accountable output. Um, The company may seek patents, but they probably won't publish, whereas the university will publish, but they probably won't note that they're working with AstraZeneca or whatever. But actually in the UK, you do see AstraZeneca is one of the key partners um, in, in the basic research there. Uh, And here also we see uh, some of our leading companies, you will see their names pop up in some of the um, basic research. But the basic research transitions to the companies, but that takes place much more likely on a face-to-face basis between universities visiting back and forth with their counterparts in companies. Okay, so we've got universities, you got private firms, let's put governments back into this. We're now almost a year into the pandemic, um, which is crazy to think about, perhaps only six months or so here in the United States, although a little bit longer, but from the world standpoint, we're almost nearing the year mark. What, um, what role is the Chinese government and the US government playing in, in that, um, that interface between Chinese scientists and US scientists? So here is where we begin to see politics adding a layer of complication, let's say, on what I call the invisible college. That's what I've called this group of people that connect to one another regardless of nation. Um, They form an invisible college of, of collaborators. They will seek one another out and work together without too much regard back to where they're getting their money from. So the U.S. scientists will be funded by the U.S. government, Chinese by Chinese, but they'll work together and, you know, publish together and and without too much in the way of that. And that has tended to produce a lot of public goods. But what we saw in the pandemic was a number of political issues that came up. And I mean it with a little p. Um, And that is, uh, first of all, in China, there was the issue of the Wuhan virology laboratory which is right in the middle of the city had been working on um, coronavirus and there was concern that perhaps 
the coronavirus leaked somehow, not, and I don't think anyone thought it was deliberately um, released, but that perhaps it leaked somehow out of the virology laboratory. Now, the National Institutes of Health funds uh, virology laboratories all around the world. They don't actually fund the Capitol building, but they fund the research going on within the building, right? So we have um, probably these, what I guess you'd call them early warning relationships with uh, virology labs all around the world. It's a really good national security uh, system that we've put in place. So at the beginning then, the Wuhan lab began to put out initial research, but politically in the US, people began to question, well, why, why did the NIH fund a Wuhan lab? Did we actually fund the capabilities to come back to us with a pandemic? Um, you know, what, what is this all about? And there was a lot of a sense of um, concern, to, I, I'd say even greater than concern, uh, alarm, let's say, that we had funded this work that perhaps was not in our own best interest without a real understanding of why and how the US government funds those activities. So that had been funded by the National Institutes of Health, which is a part of the, um, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. And the Health and Human Services Department also has, in addition to the National Institutes of Health, also has the Centers for Disease, Disease Control and Pre Prevention um, and the Food and Drug Administration. And these agencies all contribute different roles in different parts to um, can helping to manage disease and, and um, pandemic. So all of those agencies have their counterparts in China. What's interesting is that China has actually borrowed the US model around the construction and administration of medical research. Very, very similar. They've almost recreated um, a mirror image of the US system. They also have a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They also have a Food and Drug Administration. They also have a part of the Chinese uh, organization that funds scientific research. So in, at least in name, we have counterparts to work with. So politically, we also, again, with a little p, we do have the ability to collaborate and co cooperate at the political level with China with a counterpart agency. On the Chinese side, because of the uproar about the pandemic, um, there was just embarrassment that you know, this disease had come out of China. And so the Chinese uh, government said, okay, any articles, this started in March, any article being published by any Chinese scientist about the, the COVID-19 pandemic has to be cleared through the central government. Well, that put, a, that slowed everything down from China. Um, and, and you see a really big drop off um, from China starting around March. You also see on the US side, because of the concern over why are we funding that um, and how are we funding it, the US pulls back from funding some of our Chinese counterparts and um, also says to American scientists, be sure you're, you're working on um, just science with these Chinese counterparts. Why are we, you know, are we, are we sure this is secure? Are we sure these are, are secure relationships? And so, um, what you see then is, is it, it's unfortunately slowed down a little bit, the relationships that had been um, working on the basic research around the pandemic um, kind of got a bit. 
let's let, we'll, we'll pivot towards the end here um, by by looking to the future and this is a, a bridge question so you've talked about the flow of resources and the, the existing relationships what, what about the flow of people you mentioned very early on that, that for a period of time there were lots of students from China coming to U.S. universities that then study here and develop those face-to-face -face relationships with people they might partner with in the future. What's your sense, and again, now we're pivoting towards looking towards what comes next, since that's sort of a long-term investment. Are we gonna see that same flow of people back and forth at that foundational relationship um, early in one's career, or is that, is that waning? Well, right now, as we know, nobody's going anywhere. So we know that that will have an impact on scientific productivity because just in, not just from the US and China perspective, from every perspective, mobility greatly uh, drives scientific outputs. So that's number one. We know that that is going to be a drag on science. The second, point of concern there, and maybe a little bit tangential, but developing countries, um, as you know, or maybe I call mezzanine countries, uh, who were doing science in um, virology, immunology, epidemiology, are, are really cut out of this, of this system, because it has really um, defaulted to the elite, right? So really, you see the elite. And of course, we're looking at them, because we do need solutions. But on the other hand, it means that some people, um, some groups, uh, countries, whole countries that have been part of this system um, have been left behind. That's a second concern. Um, the third concern is that on the Chinese side, the Chinese had already started to pivot and say, we're going to, um, they have a China 2025 made in China policy in place where they wanted to start to pull back from uh, sending so many people abroad, uh, educating so many people in uh, foreign countries, uh, and start to educate them more in China. So that was already a policy before the pandemic. Um, and I think now we'll see, uh, see that greatly accelerated um, on China's side, uh, and perhaps, perhaps um, to the detriment of others who have been benefiting from the face-to-face, -face, side by side, as well as the sharing of, of good ideas, um, you know, from colleagues in China. I mean, it's important to note. I just wanted to drop this little footnote here that the National Science Foundation tracks this question of of who comes to the United States and who stays here. And if you look at the Chinese, they come in thousand numbers of thousands, but um, eighty-five percent of those people stay in the United States. People who get a PhD here get. PhD and stay here in STEM. And they've been feeding and, and, and populating our STEM workforce. So if that indeed dries up, then there's significant um, competitive and security consequences of losing that talent pool. So let's finish with this question, which is just in sum, what, what do you think U.S. policy can do to be most effective in promoting scientific collaboration, both bilaterally between the United States and China, but also multilaterally, these networks you're describing, which in your description are now eroding as a result of the inability to travel. What, what are some, some key policies that could be um, pulled, levers pushed um, to, to try and promote collaboration in the post-pandemic period? 
So there's some things that we can do immediately in terms of um, funding, structure of scientific uh, collaborations um, in terms of uh, what the U.S. puts out in terms of like calls for proposals. And then there's a third thing and that is infrastructure. So let me just talk about each one of those. The first one is one that is, a, is somewhat unique to the United States. And I think this is something the United States does need to grapple with. We only fund American scientists when we fund science. It's rather, it's rather unique. Most other countries will fund a foreigner uh, if they come in and work with somebody from their country and have a good idea. In the United States, we limit our funding. And of course, Congress, as I said, I work there, I know what it's like. They're going to say like, why would we fund someone from another country directly, but we don't do it. So one of the things to think about, and people have talked about this over and over again, is can we find a way to fund actual collaborations where we're funding both parties in a collaboration, not just the US side? Because then a lot of times the US side ends up doing the work, but the other side can't possibly match or uh, find a way to, to do the work and it you know, it, you can see that scientific efficiency may be heard by that. So that's kind of number one thing. Could we, in perhaps um, in, in an effort to rebuild these relationships, find a way to fund uh, a foreign partner as well as a U.S. partner? The second thing is um, to look for, as we come back out of the pandemic, we don't know when that will be, but as we do, we're going to need to figure out um, how to grow mobility. It doesn't necessarily mean that people have to come to the United States. It's been a great, huge benefit to the United States that we have been an attractive place for people to visit in the past. We've attracted generations of top scientists to come here and we've benefited by that. I think that era is ending. And so as that ends, we need to send our people out. We need to make more of an effort to you know, make sure our people get to foreign places. Um, and this is actually also the National Science Foundation is shifting their own internal um, approach to this in order to do this exact thing, not just watch science in one or two countries, but to do a global scanning, which makes sense. The third thing is infrastructure because in order to take advantage of what has happened in COVID, what we see is that um, many, many of these scientists have used open source platforms. This is a, a new phenomenon. There has been open source in the past, but it's just a trickle. But what we saw in COVID is a, a, a waterfall of materials coming into open source um, centers like um, archives, what's called archives or bioarchives, uh, and where you begin to see people putting material in before it's been peer reviewed. There's a danger in that, but there's also a benefit in it in that people can rapidly read what's coming out of the scientific um, laboratories and take what they need and grab it and maybe they need that part and they go on to, um, to do complementary research. So what we've seen is that this openness has greatly accelerated the scientific discovery process. Now, we need to learn from this. It doesn't mean everybody should be dumping all of their, <laughs> their latest thoughts out into the internet, uh, into open platforms. However, um, the openness has accelerated science. 
And what we need to do now is stop and figure out what of this is reproducible to a broader community of scientific researchers and all, perhaps all researchers, even in the humanities and the arts, social sciences. How do we use this to the betterment of knowledge creation, to speed things up, to make it more efficient, more effective, and perhaps more universal uh, in uh, sharing of knowledge? Caroline, thank you so much for that education. I can assure our audience that what we are dumping into the internet is nothing but valuable, useful knowledge. And so yeah, you all are better informed as a result of this conversation. I certainly am. You took a really complex issue and made it accessible for us um, and laid out some really concrete suggestions about ways the U.S. could be engaged in promoting that openness and uh, collaboration. So thanks for joining us today and, and good luck in, in your, your next endeavors on this important work. Thank you so much, Trevor. Trevor it's been my pleasure. I was actually putting Trevor and pleasure together. <laughs> so it's been my pleasure. Policy Brief is produced by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. 